Hello, and welcome to the November 2011 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, as usual, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly summary of all the latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And with that introduction, let's get started talking about the lead story in the November issue of Law Notes. We have a lot to get through in this podcast, including uh, our third case, which some of our listeners may be waiting for, the um, the case involving a Marine who participated in several gay porn videos. But we're going to start with the lead story. Uh, and that's a, a United States District Court case in um, out of Washington State, Doe v. Reed. Uh, this concerns a battle over disclosure of the names and addresses of those who signed a petition to place a measure on the ballot in 2009 to repeal what was then a newly enacted state law expanding the rights of same-sex partners. In this case, which has had several permutations, U.S. District Judge Benjamin Settle has now ruled that it would not violate the rights of the petition signers to release the information because they failed to show that their First Amendment rights would be violated by such disclosure. Art, this is not the first example of a case concerning the disclosure of the identities of those who have signed on to um, anti-gay ballot initiatives. Um, so what are the legal issues at stake generally in these types of cases? Well, the, the big issue is whether the identity of those who are behind a measure uh, can be adequately disclosed when it makes a difference, when uh, the vote hasn't been held yet. And uh, in this case... Uh, we're looking at names and addresses. In some cases, the litigation has been about the required filings of the identity of donors, contributors to uh, particular campaigns. And in both cases, what's at stake is the transparency of the process. Uh, is there some kind of organizational move behind these particular ballot measures that might make a difference in persuading voters whether to accept them or reject them? So I take it then your, your explanation points to the idea that those who want the names is the idea that having the names could have some influence or allow them to have some influence of using those names in some way to influence the outcome of the process? That's possible. Uh, it's, uh, it's also possible that one of the uses to which those names and addresses could be put would be to confront people about their support for the measure and one of the concerns that's expressed by the people who uh, were in favor of this referendum and uh, who wanted to keep the names confidential was that petition signers might be deterred from signing such petitions in the future if they thought that their names and addresses were going to be made public. And, and, and clearly, you know, you would think there would be a handful of people, maybe more, who, who, who might like to sign these things in secret and not have their names out there. So I guess the question from a, a legal perspective, and, and the court here certainly goes through it a little bit, is sort of what's the test for, you, you use the term, they might want to confront those who signed it. And clearly there's some types of confrontation that are okay and others that aren't. Right. There's, there's a history behind this kind of thing. Uh, back during the days of the civil rights movements of the, of the 50s and 60s, one device that some southern states uh, tried to use to deter civil rights activity was to require that all organizations disclose the names of their members in order to be tax-exempt nonprofit organizations. And the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, felt that if they were to disclose the identity of their members, their members would be subjected to harassment, people would be afraid to join and that case went to the Supreme Court and is mentioned prominently in this court's decision uh, where the Supreme Court held that it would violate the First Amendment associational rights of the members of the NAACP 
to require disclosure of their names in those circumstances. And uh, that same argument was being made here in, in Washington State. The difference was there we were talking about an organization that was uh, agitating for civil rights, a very unpopular cause in that time and place. And in this case, we're not talking about an organization at all. Uh, we're talking about random voters who uh, sign petitions on the street in front of a grocery store at a church, things of that sort, in order to get something on the ballot. So the court felt there was a big distinction here between an association advocating for a cause and individual members of the electorate signing a petition to put something on the ballot. And, and there's a little bit of uh, – I was struck by – I mean, it's a little bit ironic that we have the – we've arrived at a place where those signing the anti-gay ballot initiatives or signing a petition to get them on to the ballot – are those who would, um, I don't know if the phrase sort of would like to be in the closet about that. Uh, it, you know, we sort of arrived at an interesting moment that, uh, you know, the signers of this would actually prefer their names not be associated. I mean, can you speak to what that says about where we are? Well, it's that that's the unpopular position now might be one way of looking at it. But another way of looking at it is that some people perhaps with a little too much enthusiasm uh, in the context of the Prop 8 campaign in California – decided to go after people whose uh, donations in support of the campaign for Prop 8 uh, were revealed because of the filing requirements under California law. And there were some economic boycotts. There were some people who encountered threats. And uh, a few, a handful of, of incidents have been built up by the people behind these anti-gay ballot measures now to be evidence that the identity of petition signers and donors must be shielded Otherwise, their First Amendment political association rights will be chilled. And, and, and the court here does point out that most of the evidence submitted by the folks here seem to be really the only compelling stuff, if you could call it compelling, is, is with reference to other places where some of this stuff has happened. And here, um, you know, I, I have to say the examples of alleged harassment um, seemed pretty weak here. I, I mean, I think one person testified that two women glared at him while he was collecting sin signatures and said, quote, we have feelings too. And another called and uh, contacted a person and said that they were going to pick at the church, but they assured them they were going to conduct themselves appropriately when they did that. Um, are these folks a little thin-skinned, or, or do you think they had a genuine fear that they were going to face real repercussions? I think this is all politics. Uh, I, the interesting thing is that when, the, uh, when Judge Settle held a hearing to – collect evidence, whatever evidence the plaintiffs wanted to put in as to why they would have to be protected in this situation, all the people who testified said that they didn't feel any fear that they were going to be harassed. And they were pretty open. Most of these, these people who testified were actually people who had been pretty openly involved in the campaign. So keeping their names a secret would have been kind of silly. You, you, that's, a, that's a good point. But you, you also note at the outset this is sort of a victory that to the extent that it matters having these names uh, and having the ability to use the names in whatever you know proper way one can do that, the names and addresses, this victory comes a little – sort of a little late, right? I mean, yeah, the, 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 the problem is that the, uh, the lawsuit was brought to keep the name secret before the election. Uh, and the district judge at that point felt that the plaintiffs had at least made out a plausible case – uh, so gave preliminary relief, and the preliminary injunctive relief carried through the election, which means that as a practical matter, the proponents of R-71, the referendum measure, succeeded in keeping the names quiet, confidential, until after the vote. 
they lost the vote. This was one of those uh, unusual but one hopes uh, portentous victories right. in which we actually had the electorate of a state uphold a, an expansive domestic partnership law that uh, confers virtually all the rights of marriage on same-sex registered partners in the state of Washington. So that was upheld by the voters. And then this wrangling continued for a few years, uh, presumably because these people want to go back again and do something in the future, and they're afraid that if they can't promise confidentiality to petition signers, fewer people will sign the petitions, which, which, which might is possible. Very well be true. <laughs> might um, very well be true. And, and just for on the, on the legal point of, I mean, what, what went on here is the court sort of engaging in analysis of, you know, sort of weighing the First Amendment rights, um, you know, of the, I guess, the parties on both sides, obviously, to to come together and to petition for a cause and to have disclosure of the the other side in terms of the ballot initiative, provided that it didn't rise to the level of something more than speculative uh, threats uh, or speculation about harassment, but actually as long as there's no tangible sign that these folks were going to be targeted, that the the presumption should be in the favor of disclosure. Is that correct? Definitely. In fact, this case did go to the U.S. Supreme Court, as we reported in Law Notes, uh, and the U.S. Supreme Court said that the default position is disclosure uh, and that if people want to support a petition to put something on the ballot, they should be open open to doing that. And uh, the only circumstance in which the court would require confidentiality would be if there is some solid evidence showing that the petition signers would be at risk, such as the NAACP example that I gave at the, at the outset of this discussion. I did want to close on one one quote that I thought think is worthy of mention. I want to ask you to expand upon it a bit. You've hinted at this a little bit, but you wrote in Law Notes um, that this case, uh, along with others, shows that, quote, the forces opposed to legal recognition for same-sex couples are fighting a losing rearguard battle as society moves on with increased public support for such recognition. Can you expand on what you mean by that? Well, I'm, I'm talking about public opinion polls, and I'm talking about legislative victories. Uh, we've, we've seen a uh, dramatic expansion over the past decade in legal recognition for same-sex couples. We have marriage in six states in the District of Columbia. Uh, we have domestic partnership or civil unions in many other states. We have municipalities with civil union or domestic partnership-type registration uh, ordinances. And... The movement just seems to be in that direction. And if you look at public opinion polls, we certainly have majority support for legal recognition at this point, if not yet for marriage in every poll, although some polls now, national polls, even show 52, 53 percent in support of same-sex marriage. Uh, so when you look back just a decade, really, uh, look back to uh, the beginning of this century when support for same-sex marriage was uh, 25 or 30 percent and recognition of civil unions and domestic partnerships was a few ticks above that. And today, we really have, uh, we've educated the public. We've, the public knows us better. Uh, we have more openly gay people, more celebrities coming out, politicians coming out. Uh, when one celebrity comes out and inspires another celebrity to come out, the, the current debate about bullying has people coming out just to uh, confront the bullying. So uh, as people get to know gay people and, and are more and more comfortable with gay people, there's more and more support for recognizing our family relationships. And that's a hopeful note. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing some news out of the courts in Australia, specifically the rights of transsexuals to receive gender reassignment certificates pursuant to a statute uh, in Australia. Stay with us. 
We are back, and we're going to be discussing AB versus Western Australia. This is a case from the um, High Court of Australia, in which the court held that surgery, and in particular a hysterectomy and construction of a penis, are not required for a female to be legally reclassified as a male and receive a gender reassignment certificate under a state statute, uh, specifically the Gender Reassignment Act 2000. Uh, essentially, as long as a female-to-male transsexual is taking sex change drugs, is living as a male, and is identified by others as such, the certificate should be issued, according to the court. Um, Art, at the outset, the court notes that in Australia, legislation of some kind uh, of this type has been provided for in each of the states of Australia. They have different standards, but there is uh, legislation uh, in, in each of the states regarding how to go about receiving a gender reassignment certificate. Um, just with that as a backdrop, um, does that place Australia far ahead of the United States uh, in, in terms of its recognition of trying to honor uh, the gender identity of, of, of various folks in this country, or is it sort of a mixed bag? Well, in, in the United States, you really have to look at the laws of all the states, and some states have been more progressive on this, and some states have been less progressive. On the particular issue in this case, I think uh, Western Australia now, under this interpretation of the High Court, is far in advance of most American jurisdictions. Uh, I, my understanding is that most American jurisdictions require some kind of surgery, and as uh, we'll make clear when we're discussing the rationale of the court here, they say that surgery is not necessarily required for a, for a gender or identity recognition. And, and, and on that front, um, this is a little jarring to read. Um, because when you think about it, I think it's pretty. It, it's it, it it can be shocking the idea that this that this wound up being the key issue for the lower court case, uh, lower court in this case, or and actually the the initial gender reassignment board that's in charge with right. issuing the certificates in this case first denied the certificates, um, and the reason was was that these were two female to male transsexuals that had not shed their uteri, um, that basically had not gone through with getting rid of all of their so-called female organs, uh, sort of at any surgical or medical price there be. Um, can you explain why that issue is so important to the court and why it is that we can have a conversation where not everybody, you know, would be shocked by the idea that we would force someone to go through that procedure just to receive their certificate? Well, I think in, in the eyes of the, of the Gender Identity Board here, uh, the crucial issue was that they were defining gender with regard to plumbing, as it were. They're, they're defining gender internally when actually the big issue under the statute is whether someone is perceived or recognized as a member of a particular gender. Now, in, in the two people who uh, had applied in this case had been taking hormones, so they were reconfiguring their body shape. Uh, to uh, be more masculine, and they had uh, had mastectomies. Uh, they they did submit to surgery. Uh, they just didn't feel that they needed the internal surgery. It wasn't necessary because the hormone treatment will render them non-fertile. I mean, they're not going to be able to get pregnant. No, yeah. I get. Well, I want to speak to the pregnancy issue again because yeah, the court can that be reversed? That's an sort issue. of like fixated yeah. on the the issue of pregnancy, but. Yeah. Why Why even that level of detail? I mean, why do we care about the extent to which someone has successfully... I mean, you know, leave, you know, maybe in Australia it's different where I assume they have greater access to, 
you know, uh, government subsidized health care. But if you put it in the context of the states where these are very, probably very expensive procedures, not everybody Sorry. would have access to them. Yes, these are expensive procedures. Potentially dangerous. Potentially dangerous, not covered by insurance. So wh- why do we even... Although we have a breakthrough to announce in the U.S. That, that we should sort of slip in here, and that is that the... Uh, and this postdates the November issue of Law Notes. Uh, the Internal Revenue Service has acquiesced in a tax court decision holding that the cost of gender reassignment uh, expenses, surgery, and, and uh, related treatments will be tax deductible, uh, which the IRS has long taken the position that that's cosmetic surgery. It's not medically necessary. Now they accept that gender identity disorder is a medical condition, that there is a treatment for it, and if you are taking a treatment for a medical condition, it's tax deductible. And since it's not covered by insurance, and since it's very expensive, the chances are very good that the cost of doing these procedures will easily meet the threshold uh, of uh, income for being able to claim a tax deduction. Well, and, so and big news in the U.S. No, that is Just, you know, a little it, interpolation it, it, there. But it, it is goes, good news if you can pay, but it, but if you it can goes, pay for it, it and goes, you want to do it. Yeah, but. it goes to your point, though. Uh, I mean, why should we care? Why should the court care? Why do they think it's so important? I think part of it is the handful of news stories in recent years about uh, female-to-male uh, transitions in which the individual decided to uh, not, not retransition to being female but to become pregnant because of their particular family situation and desire to have children. Uh, so uh, if the internal surgery hasn't been done, it is possible to regenerate the uh, reproductive capacity by interrupting the hormone treatments. And we've had a few cases of people who look very male being pregnant. Well, and, and, and we, I guess this is where I, you know, the court here quotes the board, the, 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 the board reassignment uh, certificate board or whatever the formal name is. And they, they quote them as being concerned over, quote, adverse social and legal co- consequences should recognition certificates be issued while individuals still have the capacity to bear children. And I guess I'm still struggling to understand, one, why that's such a big issue, and two, how the analysis changes when, okay, so this person could have a child while they're quote-unquote a female, and a year later could transition, and we'll have a kid, and we'll have transitioned their gender. I mean, what's the difference, and, and why do we care? Why do we care? You know, why, why have courts had such difficulty accepting the need to adjust our thinking uh, and to adjust our legal institutions as we learn more and more about human identity, human sexuality, gender identity? Uh, shouldn't we be responding to the real needs of real people? And uh, I think... In that sense, this is a very important decision by the High Court, and to make clear to our listeners who may not be familiar with the Australian judiciary, this is the Supreme Court of Australia uh, that we're talking about. Uh, The Supreme Court of Australia is a court that has become much more well-informed on these issues than many other courts because of openly gay justices over the years, especially Justice Kirby, who was the first and who is now retired. But I think the level of sophistication of discussion among the judges of sexuality and gender identity issues is probably at a higher rate than in most of the high courts of the world. No, and I think that's well said. When you look at the court's decision, they they sort of first take stock of 
the challenges facing people who are interested, who feel as if obviously their perception of their gender uh, and their gender identity does not match the label that society has given them at birth. And they speak quite eloquently to what that must be like and how this statute that they're interpreting was a remedial one intended to to provide these people assistance, and that, that very much colors the analysis that the court has. And they do say something, I think that's quite quite meaningful when they say that basically for this statute to operate, it does not require knowledge of a person's remnant sexual organs. And I think that's a nice way of saying sort of we're not going to force people to, one, either do these things, or two, that we're going to have to subject somebody to some sort of you know analysis of their sexual organs. I mean, right. I think that's a very powerful... Well, it's, it's an important recognition, as you said, this is a remedial statute. The purpose of the statute is to be able to provide people with the necessary uh, identity uh, documentation that they need going through life. Uh, but, you, you, one might ask, why should it make a difference whether someone is male or female? Uh, and somehow the law cares about this. Somehow on our driver's license, somehow on our passport, they want our gender. Uh, probably it's, it's seen as an aid to identification. Right, they'll let you. They'll let you use a picture on your driver's license of you when you were 22, right. when you were 35. Not that I'm 35. Well, they usually um, require some updating. No, no update. That, that they're okay with. Stopped, yeah. Okay, but that they're okay with. But the gender marker is 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 important. Yeah. Well, and and this is this is why it's so important that over time here in the U.S. and in many other countries, we've achieved the ability to get official recognition on our on the formal documents that we need to get through life, our driver's licenses, our passports, uh, that uh, someone needs to be able to indicate their present status. I mean, imagine being a transgender individual who has not been able to get a new driver's license issued, uh, and you're stopped by a police officer who asks to see your license, and... Uh, the name and the picture on your license don't match what you look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what if you're trying to get on an airplane and you have to have some government-issued ID and the government-issued ID doesn't look like you at all and has a different name than the one you're, you're using, then it's useless to you. Uh, so it's, it's very important that uh, we've made great strides uh, in Australia, in the United States, in Europe uh, in getting uh, – some kind of recognition of gender identity change. Uh, the, the British were sort of forced into it by a decision by the European Court of Human Rights, but then they passed a gender recognition statute, which turned out to be a model for Australia and other places. I, I did want to ask one last question before we conclude talking about this, which is that for all the reasons we've already discussed, I think we agree this is, this is a good case uh, and a good decision. On the other hand, one could look at this and say, well, the court ultimately said we're not going to get in the business of examining your internal organs. We're only interested in whether you pass, essentially, whether others perceive you as the gender, uh, the gender to which you identify. And I guess I, if I could ask you to reflect on, is there a danger here that essentially that's the court saying, look, if you can pass, we'll issue the certificate? Well, I think they were, they were construing specific statutory language, and uh, the statutory language indicated a judgment by the legislature that people who will be perceived by others as members of a particular gender because of the medical or surgical procedures they've undergone in order to appear to be a member of that gender, uh, then the government will recognize that for official purposes. Uh, So I wouldn't attach an awful lot of significance to that. But actually, we all enact our gender in public. We're all acting in, in some sense. We're acting in 
accord with our gender identity and the image we have of ourselves. And in that sense, uh, people, regardless of their gender identity, have something in common. We all present a mask to the world. Well, now you're getting deep, Art. That's good stuff. Uh, Now that's undergraduate psychology. (laughs) All right. With that, we'll take one more break. Uh, When we return, we'll discuss a case involving a U.S. Marine who faced disciplinary charges and potential discharge, actually, for his performances in several gay porn videos. Yep, you'll want to stay tuned for that. We are back talking about the case of U.S. v. Simmons. Uh, This is in the U.S. Navy Marine Corps Court of Criminal Appeals. And uh, this case was assigned to me for this month's issue of uh, Law Notes for reasons I'm not totally sure of. But it's a case that's gotten some attention uh, in, in, in not the typical legal publications. Uh, it revolves around a U.S. Marine who faced potential discharge for his appearances in several gay porn films. Uh, first, some key facts. Matthew Simmons was a sergeant in the U.S. Marines, uh, an active-duty bandsman who took leave to appear in several pornographic videos involving, as the court puts it, sodomy with numerous other men. According to Simmons, he was paid $10,000 for his performances, and he acknowledged that some of the shots of him in the videos showed him wearing a portion of his Marine's uniform, including his Marine dress coat with various Marine insignias and decorations effects. Uh, In the video, Simmons also mentions that he is a Marine, and outtakes of the videos that were used for promotional purposes showed Simmons wearing his blue Marine coat. This all ended badly when an acquaintance of Simmons, a former Marine, learned of the videos and reported the information to military command. Art, um, we're obviously in a post-don't-ask-don't-tell world now, so give us a sense of what the legal issues in this case were all about, with, um, all about with that as a background. Well, uh, certainly at the time the court-martial took place, we were still operating in a don't-ask-don't-tell world. Uh, and yet, interestingly, when you when you read the court's opinion, it's not the sodomy that they're concerned with. It's uh, the fact that people are going to see this guy in a porn video with marine insignia and stuff of that sort. Uh, so what they were court-martialing him for was the use of the uniform in this porn video. The, barely the use yes. of the uniform. Yeah, uh, well... I guess he was lucky it was a porn video, so he wasn't required to be completely <laughs> dressed. Uh, but And saying he was a Marine and that sort of thing. They, uh, they're very concerned about people using uh, their military status and their military accoutrements for commercial purposes without authorization. And, of course, there's always the danger that someone will think that this was a recruiting film well, well, for the know, Marines. You know, actually, and though, it probably could function that way in certain circles. Well, you joke a little bit about yeah. that, but one of the part I do want to get to the, the fact that the court didn't really seem that much concerned with the acts of sodomy. I want to right. talk about that in a second. But there is this idea of, oh, there is, there's no chance here that anyone could misconstrue this as being um, – promoted or endorsed by the Marines or it being a Marine video. I mean, and I guess I would ask, how would there be any chance that anyone could think that a guy, whether he's dressed in his Marine uniform or not, I mean, is there really anyone in the world who would think that that would be an official act by the Marine authorized by his, by his commander? Nope. And I think that may partially explain why the Court of Criminal Appeals here decided to reverse the rather draconian penalties that were imposed on Sergeant Simmons. 
Uh, it refers to him as a bandsman, but it doesn't specify which instrument he plays in the band. I, I did I did know at one point. It's either a trombone, trombone or a, um, you know, I had looked it up. There's another reference. Uh, yeah. If you Google him, which we'll talk about Googling him yes. a little later. Well, um, we know trombone players are very hot, so... <laughs> Or we're going to have to have to tell this down. <laughs> so. You can see that this case has uh, provided some amusement for for Brad and I as we talk okay. about it. Only because it has a, a good result uh, for no other reason. But um, back to the point about you know you've written about when you've written about the repeal of Don't Ask Don't Tell that the repeal doesn't undo the continuing prohibition on sodomy and and the regulations. Yeah. So we should we should just clarify for people where that stands. The Uniform Code of Military Justice still has a provision making it a crime for members of the uniformed forces to engage in sodomy, which they define as anal or oral sex. Uh, however, since Lawrence versus Texas, the U.S. Supreme Court decision holding that uh, homosexual sodomy, as it were, is, comes within the liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment uh, in, in reference to a state sodomy law, it would also, of course, come within the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment when it comes to federal law including the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice has not been amended, but the military appeals courts have taken the position that some acts of sodomy engaged in by military members cannot be constitutionally penalized. And in fact, uh, the conduct of Mr. Simmons arguably falls within the protection, although one might say that by having people filming him, <laughs> He's, he's sort of taking it outside the realm of privacy. But their main concern has been sodomy between members of the forces on military bases. Uh, a lot of the sodomy prosecutions, frankly, involve men and women, heterosexual sodomy, which is also covered by Article 125 of the Uniform Code. So uh, it's become a case-by-case -case determination. Uh, some sodomy prosecutions... Uh, since Lawrence v. Texas have been overturned by the military appeals courts on the grounds that it was not within the scope of peculiar military concern. For example, sex off base while not on duty with a civilian is generally seen as okay, and although technically in violation of the code, it would violate the constitutional rights of the individual to prosecute them for well, it. And, and why, though, the court – I think you've just articulated why they ultimately – he would not have faced charges relating to the, you know, the quote, the acts of sodomy. But there's no mention here by the court at all. It's almost a, the only reference to sodomy is so he can accurately describe what actually went on here. Uh, right. And then there's there's no discussion. It's focused solely on the the use of the uniform. Um, you know, the previous charges were for also. I think it, it invoked the the regulations against uh, adultery as well was part of the initial charges, and it was conduct unbecoming essentially of a marine or reflecting poorly on the force, but there's really no discussion of, you know, the fact that there could be potentially a disciplinary charge in relation to the kind of acts he engaged but, but in. But of course, we also have to have to keep in mind that uh, the military prosecutors decide what they're going to charge, and uh, I think there was some, some bargaining going on here. I think there was some pleading to charges going on, and the real focus was on whether the appropriate penalty had been, uh, had been invoked and whether, in fact, his use of the uniform actually violated the provision on misusing the uniform for particular purposes. And, and here we, we do see that you, you mentioned that this, this final decision is in a post-don't-ask-don't-tell world. Right. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, we had the initial decision seemed pretty harsh. He was 
going to be subject to being uh, confined for 90 days and facing a, a fine and a bad conduct discharge, which is the big penalty right, from the because, Marines. Because that would, uh, that would preclude various benefits and uh, severance pay and things of that sort. So is it the case, despite the fact that – I mean, there's no, there's no discussion here. No one knows whether this gentleman is gay or not. There's no right. discussion of it. I, you know, but it does seem like the don't ask, don't tell, the repeal actually matters here, even though it's not brought up and it's not referenced in any way, right? Right. It's, it's not mentioned at all. And uh, ironically, the, uh, the opinion comes out just a month after uh, the don't ask, don't tell policy bit the dust. So it's, it's very interesting that it's not mentioned and uh, that, the, of course, they're, they're suspending the discharge here. They're saying he's going to do some time in the brig, but uh, ultimately he's not going to be dismissed. And, and, Maybe, and, and it could be that he is such a talented trombone player that, you know, the bandmaster may be lobbied to keep him in, you know. He, um, for those listeners who uh, – the, the, we, we did find it – I'll speak for myself. I found it funny the, the, the court refers to his screen name uh, in these videos. It doesn't tell you what the, um, what the screen name is, but he apparently appeared under the name Christian Jade on um, – Quite a number of sites, including I guess they're called Active Duty College Dudes and Corbin Fisher. Um, so he made um, this was not a one-time thing, and this is someone who's received a tremendous amount of publicity. It's not clear to me from the court. I mean, is he pro- is he prohibited from ever doing this again? I mean, I guess what would happen if he was to continue his his porn career? Well, he should probably borrow a different services uniform to well, use the next You time. say that jokingly, but it seems like his only faux pas was wearing the military uniform. Well, I think they also thought there was sort of a conduct unbecoming aspect to this as well. Uh, I, I, would, I would think that uh, moonlighting as a porn star is not viewed favorably by uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for example. <laughs> Um, in all seriousness, though, this this continuing ban on, on on acts of sodomy. I mean, what? Why hasn't that bitten the dust? I mean, what? If it's really about well, sex between service members, I mean, there's another way to phrase that. Right. And, and you know, well, the the problem is that the Uniform Code of Military Justice is enacted by Congress as a statute, and so you need Congress to make any changes. And uh, you and I can look at the composition of Congress at the present time, and we can understand why changes won't be made. And so theoretically, someone could right. face prosecution. Right. It's, it's still up to the courts. And uh, the, the uh, military courts have yet to uh, render a lot of decisions since don't ask, don't tell, bit the dust. It's only a few months. So uh, we'll see if the change in the policy over who can serve will be reflected in the approach to sodomy prosecutions. Okay. Uh, Art, I'm going to give you the, the, the last word on this case. Anything else to add about... Um about Christian Jade and, uh, <laughs> and his antics. Uh, no, I mean, well, if, if that's all, if we've covered it all. Well, we can... I, I think we've, I think we've covered it all. We've, we've probably covered up more than he uncovered. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think that having given all our listeners the necessary information, they can go and see the evidence for themselves. All right. On that note, that's um, all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please visit us at www.le-gal.org. That's legal.org. Or at the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. This and future podcasts can also be found online at legal.podbean.com. And if you'd like to make a donation in support of Lesbian Gay Law Notes or this podcast, please also consider donating to the Legal Foundation, also online at legal.org. Finally, your comments and questions are also welcome at info at legal.org. Thanks for listening.